Hello and welcome to the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. I'm your host, Nick McGowan, and on this show, my guests and I unpack the stories that shape us and the lives we lead on our path to self-mastery. Today on the show, we have Jose Rosado. Jose is a behavioral health clinician and an adjunct professor in Maryland who's battled ADHD, depression, and even a false diagnosis of bipolar, all of which have led him to becoming a loved husband, father, friend, and recovery peer. So listen close as we unpack the stories that have shaped him and how he leads himself, his peers, and clients all toward a healthy lifestyle. So let's not wait any longer. Let the games begin. Jose, welcome to the show, man. I'm excited you're here. Thank you for being with us. No, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. You know me. We, this is uh, something we've been talking about for uh, a while in various iterations. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's funny because most times that we talk, we're basically having like a podcast episode anyway, because we get into like 14,000 <laughs> different things, run amok. Typically, your wife will be like, get mm-hmm. off the damn phone. You're like, but I'm talking to my friends. Yeah. 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 yeah that definitely happens. And, uh, and I, I, I am very talkative. So like, I recognize that. Um, but what I think is interesting too, is just like, I don't talk to friends a lot, you know? So when I do, I'm like, oh, I'm getting real deep and, and it's never like a 10 minute conversation, you know? So I don't feel bad. I make, uh, I make no qualms. <laughs> Isn't it interesting as we get older, our circles get a bit smaller and the mm-hmm. conversations we have, we expect a higher quality of conversation. So as we go through stuff, I know we do that. Hell, we were introduced. So to give a little bit of context of where Jose came from, Jose and I met a couple years ago through a mutual buddy of ours, Josh. You're probably listening, Josh, and we appreciate you. Um, <laughs> and we had such an awesome night hanging out, having some drinks and dinner and talking about all the things that we could get into. And then we lost touch for a couple of years. And I just kind of remembered you as the Mexican food guy. Josh's friend who we went and had Mexican food and I would think of the queso fondito from the place that we went and I just always thought of you and deliciousness so appreciate you being here oh that's fine that's totally fine El Camino Real in (sighs) Philly that's it isn't isn't what it used to be but when I was living there it was a great spot that and Dos Segundos down the street Mm. is really good um, but I really did I remember the margaritas were really good at at, uh, El Camino and then the um what was it? The uh, the fake buff, the seitan wings were really good. Oh, man. Yeah. I just yeah. ate before this uh, recording, but uh, I could go for some of that right now. Then again, I'm about 1,000, 1,100 miles away. Yeah. And I had just had a mess of croutons and cheese before we started, because that's what every good guest should do when they hop on a podcast. It's crunching their uh, host's ear. Um, but yeah, and I could, still, I could still go for some seitan wings for sure. I understand. Well, let's uh, let's get started with all this. Man, I appreciate you being here. Can you tell us one thing that you do for a living and one thing that most people don't know about you? Uh, I guess I'll start with the latest thing um, in my career. And I am a, my official title is uh, Administrative Officer 3 at the Behavioral Health Administration uh, for the state. Um, so basically I am a grants administrator for, uh, the state of Maryland, uh, for uh, all the state opioid response peer programming. So a lot of like 
peer workforce stuff. So helping peers like myself and others, um, you know, get access to trainings, um, get access to funds to cover their certification costs, um, to get certified. And then also, um, we have, a one of the grants is in, is, is in relation or in partnership with the department of labor, uh, from Maryland that, um, helps, with getting job trainings and skills for peers as well. So they get access to um, good paying jobs that are non-subsidized. And let's see. So one thing people know, so don't know about me. If you look at my size, I mean, a lot of people who do know me know this, but people who don't, um, I was, you wouldn't tell, but I was born at five and a half months and I was one pound and eight ounces when I was born. Wow. Yeah. I think I unofficially held like a Guinness record for a while. <laughs> unofficially, like in your family, he was a no, tiny no, baby. literally. Like I looked it up. Like I think, like in the nineties, octuplets or something came around. And they beat me. But Damn those octuplets! Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, size of Coke cans. Um, but yeah, I fit in a shoebox. So there's that. It was funny. I had a buddy of mine. He was like a beanpole, and he was the fat. Like to this day, the fattest baby I've ever seen. Period. Like, you see pictures of him, and he looked like a Michelin baby. Like, I kid you not, every, like, two inches was a crease. And his poor mother, he was oh, almost 11 pounds, and his poor mother is, like, this four foot ten Dominican woman. And then he was really skinny growing up. So it wasn't until he joined the Marines, like, years later, he kind of filled out a little bit. But, like, we used to joke and be like, hey, who who do you think was the one who was a pound and a half, and who do you think was 11 pounds? And, of course, I always got... You know, the 11 pound baby, but that's kind of how it works out. Like little babies end up being thick people, adults, and then really fat babies end up being pretty trim kind of, uh, you know, adult. I don't know if it's like maybe their, their, uh, you know, kind of drive gets going sooner. What do you call it? Their uh, metabolism. I, mean, I, don't oh, know. I have no idea. I'm thinking like your the mental drive. Like the no, baby's negative. like, I'm no, going to no, fucking no. get on with this. Let's do it, yeah, life. No, no, just, yeah, just burning food. And then me, I'm just like, I'm so excited to be here. Well, so let's take a little bit of a step back. Sure. You you said I want to start with what I'm doing now and most recently. So, yeah. Give us a little bit of your background and what led you to do what you're doing today. So, um I so I I now uh, as I mentioned earlier I'm a peer. So I've I've now when I was in my 30s realized I have um ADHD. And I've had it most of my life. And for a long time I've lived with depression and anxiety. And the ADHD part was the part that would confuse like clinicians and stuff because I would get improper diagnoses. So at one point I had like a bipolar diagnosis and when I didn't really agree with it, but it was what I got. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll just live with it and figure out what to do. And then when I met the psychiatrist I have now about six years ago, uh, he said to me, you know, Hey, I, I, I don't, I don't, I can tell you right now, I don't think you're bipolar. You know, I don't know what it is, but I don't think you're bipolar. I said, okay. I said, well, I'll be honest, like, I really wasn't crazy about the diagnosis either, but at least, like, it was something. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not bipolar, what am I? And he was the first doctor in my life that ever said, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. I just met you, but we're going to manage the symptoms, and then I don't really worry about labels and diagnoses just yet. I respected it. I'm still with him to this day. And it was probably like two years later, I completely forgot. <laughs> and I was like, hey, crazy question about that diagnosis. And he said, uh, he jokingly was like, well, I'm still not ready. Um, but if you want to force me, he's like, uh, I would say it's severe depression, um, anxiety, and ADHD. 
which if you look at the way it manifests many times can mimic bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So one of the things I've always noticed about myself is I always need to have like a bunch of things to do. And it's not so much um, like avoidance, like I don't want to deal with being alone and all that kind of stuff. It was more of just like my brain feels like a browser with a thousand tabs open all the time. And when I'm able to juggle multiple things, I'm able to like hyper focus and it just, it just keeps me at this like high burning kind of level and kind of like that metabolism, right? For you know, little fat people, babies, sorry. If you don't cut that out in the beginning, obviously that'll make no sense now. But, um, so I've always had multiple jobs. So right now I have three jobs. Um, my main job I mentioned earlier was at the BHA and that's my, my job, I, my day 95. And then I'm a adjunct faculty. So I'm a, a professor at Towson University in the psychology department. Right now I teach abnormal psychology. And then my third job is uh, I'm a clinician. So I'm a therapist, licensed therapist. So in, um, that's a new, that's one of the newer ones. So in, in Maryland we're called, um, well, there's two levels. So you have a licensed graduate professional counselor, which is what I am. And then you have a licensed clinical professional counselor. So an LGPC and then an LCPC. Uh, so then I see clients uh, as well for a clinic in Baltimore City. So which out of that do you feel fulfills you the most? Honestly, you know what it is? I, I love them all. And it sounds so funny. And I, I used to think like, which one's the one that just kind of drags a little bit. Mm -hmm. But honestly, like I'm so blessed and, it, and it, 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 I'm like ridiculously grateful because I've been, I've had crappy bosses in the past. So like, I know what it's like to just feel unfulfilled and be frustrated at your job. So my boss now, it's actually a really crazy story. My direct supervisor now at work is a peer mentor of mine that I met six years ago when I lost my job. I was working for a company in New York City as a digital project manager. I got laid off. And what followed was two year period where I was just basically looking for work all the time. And uh, in that time, I decided I wanted to change careers and I didn't know what it would look like. You know, when I had the, I started a podcast at one point, I did the hundred episodes called the Angry Millennial Show. Um, and that definitely pushed me towards like, I want to be a therapist. And then I had to stop the show after a hundred episodes and go, well, now what does that look like? You know, like, what do I do? My first training in Baltimore City was to become a peer recovery specialist. And I was the only person out of like 30 people in that training who didn't have a job. And on the break, the one of the facilitators asked me to come up and was like, hey, so you're looking for work? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, all right, well, I have your information here. If I hear anything, I'll let you know. I said, okay, cool. Like it sounded genuine. I was happy. I go to walk away and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can you come back? And I'm like, what's up? And he goes, I'm sure you've heard that shit a lot the last two years. And I was like, mm, yeah, but again, you seem genuine. Like, it's cool. I appreciate it. He said, no, no, no. Let me, let me try and help it. Let me, do, let me do one better. So he takes out his phone, calls someone at the local health department in my county and, and says, hey, I got this guy here, Jose Rosado. You should check him out. I'm going to give him your information. He's going to send you his resume. Um, you know, you should, you should meet with him and try and help him get the rest of his training done so he can, he can become a certified peer recovery specialist. And he hung up. And that was, in that moment and since, the most kindness 
anyone has ever shown me with regards to like looking for work and being a professional. And we kept in touch over the years. I saw him at a bunch of trainings. And then um, a couple of years ago, I thought it was already my full circle moment when I became the executive director of a Wallace Recovery Center uh, here in Maryland. And he was my point of contact at the BHA for our reporting because he, he was part of the, our grant that we got to operate. And I thought to myself, how cool is this? Like you met me when I was unemployed and I was frustrated and I was looking to find work. And now I'm an executive director of a, you know, of a wellness and recovery center. And I thought it was awesome. And it really was. It really was. Uh, and then fast forward, um, you know, two years from there, uh, he reaches out to me and says, hey, uh, I have a um, opening on my team that I think you'd be really grateful for, and uh, I'd love if you'd apply. And I've been working there ever since April of 21 and absolutely loving it. And the cool thing is, again, I say, to long story short, to why this is all really cool, is that he knows me for so long and knows how I am and how I operate that he gives me, and all of us really on our team, but like a ton of autonomy. And he says, look, you can do whatever you want to do. I don't care what you do during the day. As long as you get your job done and you get your hours in, I don't give a shit. So he allows me to see clients during the day so I don't have to work 15-hour days anymore. You know, he allows me to, to teach, you know, and, 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 and on two days a week I go down to campus and, and teach. And then I come home and I work the extra hours again. And it's like I love the fact that I get that flexibility and that, you know, um, I'm able to just – like I like I always do, I'm able to balance all these different things, spin all these plates, and feel totally fulfilled because I, I love my pure work, but it's very macro. But I'm glad to be in the pure world that got me the start, and then I can go to people and say, hey, I know what you're going through. I've been there. Uh, let me help you. And then I always knew I still wanted to do the direct client work still, so that's why I became a clinician. And then... The teaching is just, I love teaching. Like, if you ever have the opportunity to do it, it's just so much fun. Like, it's purely all, you know, um, just just really fulfilling. And and it's fun because it keeps you young and grounded. People call you out in your shit all the time, <laughs> as they should, because they're college kids. Um, and I always knew when I was in school, when I was my first time in grad school and, and undergrad, like, I loved all my adjuncts. Because they were still working in the field and you knew they cared. So a lot of times they came in after working all day and they came in and still wanted to teach. And they were usually teaching things that they were super into, um, which previously I used to teach entrepreneurship at the University of Baltimore. And I'm still super into that, you know, as we've had those conversations and I still I still consult and do other things within that space. But um, for me, it was fun to start getting more into the clinical end, which was the, the career change I made the last couple of years. What an interesting story to think how you went through basically a two-year drought of trying to find mm-hmm. a new job, air quotes, yeah. or some yeah. sort of direction, and being able to get to that point where, you know, some people may have quit. Some people that went through the craziness of 2020 and lost their job may have people that they know that also lost their lives because they quit. They gave up. They couldn't see that through. So the fact that you got through that for two years and then it got to somebody that had a huge heart and actually wanted to care and Mm -hmm. do the right thing, look where it set you up now. It's easy for us to get into the 
context of what you do every day and how you love all of that. But it's also easy for us to bypass the path that it took you to get there. So can you kind of break yeah. that down a bit, what that looks like from your perspective now for people that are going mm-hmm. through that sort of situation? So for years before that, for you know 10 plus years before that, I was uh, working as a professional photographer. So I worked as a portrait photographer and, um, and you know, if you tell anyone, like, if you look at joserosadofoto.com, it's all the lifestyle and, 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 you know, fashion work that I did that I loved and I genuinely loved doing, but let's be real. I also did automotive racing, real estate, you know, I did whatever paid the bills, you know what I mean? Uh, um, corporate headshots paid really well. I did that a lot. So I did that for, you know, 10 years. And then when around the time I met my wife, uh, I wanted something more stability and a steady check. So I started working for a New York company. And while, don't get me wrong, pay I'm still working my way back up to what I used to get paid because that was New York City money. And that was, you know, obviously a, a great, a great uh, paycheck. But I was just not in it. You know what I mean? And And I was at that time trying to do my hand entrepreneurial side hustles and things I could do. But I was so scared of telling them that, that like it, it just burned me out on both ends of the candle where I was like keeping this secret and then trying to do two things at once. And like, you know, using half my ass for both of them, neither one of them really worked out. So, um, when I got laid off, it was because the company was going public and I was a contractor and it was like, you know, last one in first one out. I was there almost four years. Um, but I'm, I don't care what anyone says. I know that the reality is if I was an all-star, they would have figured out a way to keep me. Like the performance part of it, let's be real. That's part of the equation. It's a major part. So I knew like I wasn't in it. it, My heart wasn't in it. And that's okay too, right? Like I always tell people, you don't have to do what you love. You got to be honest with yourself though. Very apparent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, you know, but at the same time, if you're miserable, change something, you know, and I didn't know how to do it. I was trying to do two things at once. And then life was like, "Mm," you know, and gave me that what happened. Now the timing was also really difficult if I'm honest, because I just moved to Maryland from Philadelphia to go from like fun weekend kind of like guy that's dating my kid's mom to full-time stepdad. So now it was like we were a year into living in, in Maryland. We had full custody of the kids and then I lost my job. So it, it was an interesting time because I was always very pragmatic and I had two degrees and I had no problem going to Planet Fitness like I've done in the past when I was living in Philly and working for $8 an hour. I don't care. I'll do what I have to do. But the thing was, I was at this point in my career where now I couldn't even do that because I was older and had too much experience. And then they were like, this is like too much of a gap. So I couldn't find anything. I mean, I'm, and what's really great was that around that time, I was trying everything I could to like mailing out tons of applications, filling out things every day. And it got to about eight months in and I had nothing. And I was getting like this real kind of breaking point. And I went to my parents, my wife, and I said, look, I'm, I'm pretty much running out of money. But what I want is this. Give me one month. Give me one month to just do my own thing and then we'll reassess. So they agreed. And in that time, I started going, you know what? I got to go back to making things for myself. 
and feeling some sort of ownership of what I was doing and feeling like I was making progress. So I started writing and I always loved writing, but I never liked blogging in the sense of like uh, photography because, you know, a lot of times it was very dry. It was like, here's a setup. Here's what I shot. Here's what it looked like with the lights before and after. And I hated it. I was like, this is dumb. So I just started writing long form content about what I was feeling. And it really actually started resonating with people. And that became, or after that, out of that came um, creativesagainstdepression.com. So I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm writing. And within two weeks of writing, I got hired by uh, a company to write content for their website, like a photo company. And I thought to myself, in two weeks of just doing my own thing, I made more progress in the last eight months of going on interviews after interviews and all these sorts of things. So I said, all right, let me keep going. What, what's something else I mean that I'm wanting to do? And a podcast came to my, my mind. So I said, all right, I got one month. I'm going to have to make it work. So I started the podcast. And literally within the end of the first month, I went to a um, photo um, or a, it was a, uh, a phase one kind of event that our buddy was talking at. So phase one is like a big medium format camera manufacturer. And he was, you know, sponsored at the time. I think he still is. And he was going to speak. So I was just going to support a friend and network and whatever. So we're talking to people there uh, at the event at phase one, who I'd known over the years. And I told them about the podcast. And they said, oh, so you're going to be at, a, you know, at a, um, uh, <laughs> I'm blanking out on the name, but at a, oh man, this is going to bug me. The, it's the um, Photo Plus. So literally the larger of the year. So it's the, it's the one at the end of the year in New York. So it's the, one of the larger slash largest uh, photo expos in the world. So Photo Plus in New York at the Javits Center. I hate crowds. <laughs> like I have a huge like borderline phobia of crowds. So they tell me, oh, well, you're going to Photo Plus, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you couldn't catch me dead at the Javits Center. What? And I said, you know what? This is the one I, this is what I need. This is what I need to be my like anchor. I said, it's next month, right? I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, it's in like a month. I was like, course i'll be there so i told myself i have a month now to finish recording these episodes get the website up and launch the podcast so that we can go to this expo and then try and see if we can get people to be on our show and we did and it was i'll send you some photos i mean it was just like long story short some of the most surreal stuff that ever happened that you couldn't even make up you know, like the photographers that I known over the years who were like the rolling stones of the photo world that were on the show that, you know, people were supportive. People wanted to be part of it. We went to all these after parties. I, I legit, I looked at my, um, my Apple watch at the time. We went up to New York, slept on couches, walked everywhere. I walked 23 miles in two and a half days. Most of that was obviously walking around the actual expo, but in the city, but like, yeah. So at that time I said, all right, can you guys give me till the end of the year? 
they went back to my wife and my, you know, and my parents, and I said, "Can you guys give me to the end of the year?" And they saw what we were doing. They saw how I was suddenly like motivated, and I wasn't deeply depressed anymore and frustrated. And fast forward a year, we did a hundred episodes, and at the end, it was three days a week uh, of the show. And after a hundred episodes, and then also doing stuff for Creators Against Depression. Um, for me, it was a good like stopping point, you know, pausing point. And, uh, and then at that point I said, I want to be a therapist, but I didn't know what that would look like. And that was literally when we paused was like September of 2000, I want to say 15, might've been 16. No, it was 16, 2016. And that October I met my boss at a training. I think everyone's got something that they're good at. And if you just give yourself the time and the space to just see what's possible, um, I think that it's totally something that can happen. You know what I mean? Like I used to tell people how awesome podcasts were. I used to go around for a while after that and I was trying to consult, trying to get people to, to start their business to have a podcast. And when you look at like the, the data behind it and the metrics and now years later where it's exploded, even then it was on the rise, but like even the data back in 2016 was like all about just, it's a, it's a great medium for any business. Or if you're just someone who's just really into Legos or, <laughs> you know, football or motorbikes or whatever, or car racing, you can have, you know, your own little kind of piece of the internet where you can uh, talk about stuff that you're passionate about and eventually hopefully figure out how to monetize it and that kind of thing. Or So that was my big thing was just really trying to say, invest in yourself, you know, believe in yourself. Cause that was the toughest thing for me at that point was I knew I was smart. I knew I'm a hard worker. I have, you know, I had like good education, all these things, but I couldn't get a chance. And it was so frustrating not having the opportunity being given to me that I thought at that point, you know, with my experience, I kind of earned, you know, and I said, I used to run six figure campaigns for blue chip companies. Now I can't even get a job at like the mall. And it was frustrating. And I just went back to just doing stuff for yourself, whatever that may look like. And here I am, you know. There's a lot to unpack with that. The fact that you were frustrated makes total freaking sense. I mean, I'd be frustrated <laughs> as hell as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of mm -hmm. people get to that point where they get frustrated. And they fix on the mindset of being fucking frustrated and just yeah. being upset with being upset. And then they continue to spiral and go down that path. It sounds like you went there with through the depression. But the fact that you're able to talk to your wife and your family and say, this is what I'm thinking, give me a little bit of time, is an incredibly smart move. How did you get to that point where you were like, here's what I'm going to do next. And I need you to hold me accountable. Because that's what that really is. Yeah. It, you know, let's be real. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I was in a very fortunate position where, you know, my parents were able to help float us for a little while, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And my wife was able to be supportive because she, she was pulling in most of the income at that time, you know, if not all of it where, so, you know, at the time I was doing whatever I could, you know, I was, I started teaching at a local community college and, and the writing was getting me some money. And then the podcast started making some money. So it was like, you know, I was able to cobble together, like, you know, uh, uh, something, you know what I mean? Sure. Like more than I made my first year in nonprofit actually, but it was, 
more just like asking for their permission and realizing that I wasn't doing this just to like, you know, I, I, we used to joke with my wife. She used to, when I first, when I first told her about it, she thought of like this emo llama, you know, remember that meme, yeah. emo llama with like the bangs. I just want to work with my art, ma. And like, that's what she thought. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But I said to her, I said, but I'm, I'm really giving this a lot of thought. I'm still doing what I can to make money and bring in money. I just, I just want to see if I can take this time, this moment right now that I may never have again, this opportunity that when I'm out, quote unquote, out of work to, to just try and believe in myself and see if I can do it. And, you know, my wife eventually became one of the producers for the show, ended up also co-hosting it with me towards like the middle towards the end, which was amazingly fun. And we still talk about it all the time. And those were awesome episodes to do together. And, and I think my parents too were, they knew too, that I was always that entrepreneurial type, that self-starter, you know, and, and they, and they were like, well, you, you've done all the things you're quote unquote supposed to do. You know, I, I didn't want to go to college originally. You know, I went to college because that's what you were supposed to do. And then I went, I, I did well and ended up doing really well in school. And then it was like, well, what do I do next? And like, well, you know, it's not a great job market. It's 2006 in New York City, you know? And like, I was like, okay, well, what am I gonna, I went, I went for advertising, which around that time wasn't hiring because of all the YouTube stuff and all the stuff that was going on. And then I went back to school and I graduated in 08 with an MBA in 2008 in New York, right around the turn of the, you know, the crisis of, you know, the, um, recession so it was like like now it's like now you're really screwed and you got i'm overeducated. i didn't have enough work experience and it just was i was screwed from the jump so it was always very much i was thrusted into this entrepreneurial kind of do what you can and that's where photography came in for years and i was very fortunate when i, that I had that so when i look back now I, I really think that a lot of the things that were tied into were just helping people you know, like I could have done any kind of photography. I wanted to do portrait photography. You know, like I wanted to work with people. And I was in high school. I was a camp counselor and, and like, you know, over the summers and stuff. And I was a big brother, a big sister mentor. And I was in college. Like, like it was always this like common thread. And I mean, it, to me, like you said, it was communication. So that was a big thing was communicating with my family and my loved ones. This is what I need from you. You know, I think that's a huge thing. Um, whereas before I would shut people out, you know, with my depression, I would just shut everyone out and they would just worry about me and I would just be irritable and mad and, and that's all whatever it was. But what I took out of that was it wasn't my first bout with depression. It wasn't my first time getting laid off, but it was my first time with like a ton more responsibility in my life. And what I realized was that life is going to just kick you when you're down sometimes, you know? And it's, the reality is life is hard, period. So if life is difficult, can you work towards some goal or something you want to do that is going to be difficult, but at the very least every day when you're working on it, you can tell yourself, and I still do this, you can tell yourself every day, I'm one day closer to my big goal. Mm-hmm. So it's worth it. It's worth the stress and the frustration and the headaches and the lack of sleep and all the, all the things you go through. Because even if I didn't have that big, big goal, life is still stressful in general. 
So it's like, I could just feel like I'm stagnant and just surviving. Or I could go, you know what? I have this big goal. I'm going to do whatever I can to do it. And I'm going to make sure I, I take my first step this day. And every day I'm doing one thing, even if it's a little thing, to get me closer to that bigger goal. And it's just made time. Like, I can't believe it's been six years when I, when I say it out loud. Like, that blows my mind that it's now been six years. But what's crazy is, like, now I can look back. You know, you can never connect the dots looking forward. I can only connect the dots looking backward, right? And I can look back and say, like, it's so serendipitous. Like, all these things that I did and went through that made me get towards this goal. And I've had lots of ups and downs along that way that I thought would have, would have broke me. And I just kept telling myself, okay, like, acknowledge it, sit in it. Now what? You know, like, asking yourself, now you're going to get up. What's the thing you're going to do next? What's the thing, you know? And I just looked at it very pragmatically, very, like, um, you know, like, in terms of, like, therapy, like, like almost like CBT. And I removed the emotion out of it. You know, I acknowledged it. I sat in it. But then I was like, all right, what step do I have to do next to keep moving forward? And that's what kept me going. Yeah, it's, it boils down to perspective, you know, the perspective of being in that spot and saying, okay, well, I have this. And you will always have two opportunities in front of you no matter what. You can either be really positive or really negative, and you got to be balanced between them. But you've got to pick one or the other, just like your brain can only handle focusing on one thing or the other. Try it. You can only be happy or you can only be sad. You can't be them both at the same time. And I'm not talking about some weird middle ground where you're just, uh, meh. That's called depression, and you actually need to talk to somebody about that. But what I'm talking about is that dichotomy there. And for your perspective, to be able to be smart enough and aware enough for yourself to say, I need to just do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I think some people have a hard time with that. So for the people that you work with, the clients that you work with, even other peers, how do you help them manage their emotions and their mindset when they're in those spaces? That's a good question. Again, I think a lot of it, like you mentioned, is life is hard. Life is going to happen at you and to you sometimes. And it's not going to really kind of follow any kind of pattern. And it's going to be chaotic. And I think, again, for me, a lot of times we do work with like goal setting, you know, because if you're, if you're just, it's very easy to get lost especially if you deal with depression or anxiety or any other kind of diagnosis, or even if you don't, just in general, it's easy to feel really untethered, you know, and feel like you're kind of just floating. And uh, so any way that you can ground yourself, like that's a big thing. A lot of times when working with clients is like work on breathing techniques or like little grounding techniques um, things to put them in the present moment, you know, and, and, and out of their head, but like more in the present moment um, of the space that they're in. And then from there, once they can kind of get themselves to a place where, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm grounded, I'm, I'm at a baseline. Okay, now let's, let's have those rational conversations of, of like, you know, what, what can you do? You know, like what are some things like problem solving and and like, you know, really trying to um, 
start to take action steps and smart goals and all those kinds of things that that can help. Um, because you know when you're struggling, you have to realize that emotion, every emotion, every single emotion that you feel is completely valid. It's completely valid. Period. That being said, they can also be irrational. So it's like you know, like you said, when people are feeling these kind of emotions, sure, acknowledge them, sit with them. You know, like 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 acknowledge the fact that I'm angry right now, and just sit with that for a second, and then ask yourself, why am I angry? You know, like like start understanding maybe what is this underlying thing, and and a lot of times like like anger, especially we talk a lot about like um, I teach this parenting class in jail, and one of the things that the I would teach like incarcerated individuals, we would talk about like secondary emotions. And we would talk about like how like anger is a secondary emotion. That in reality, it's not really an emotion. It's just like you're angry because of something, you know? So like there's something usually, what is it, you know? And and trying to understand your your understand your feelings and your emotions. And um one of the things that we used to do every in the beginning that I thought was kind of hokey, but ended up being really, really beneficial um, was we would give them a, we would start every day. We would do, we would do a guided meditation and it's a grounding meditation technique. And we would start the class with that. Then we would have check-ins and we would use, they would have a, a piece of paper with a bunch of cartoon faces on it with the emotion written underneath and say, how are we feeling today? And they would, you know, kind of point. And, you know, again, it, when I saw all that, I'm thinking to myself, you expect me to walk into a jail and just give a cartoon sheet of paper over to people and say, let's talk about our emotions. I'm like, I don't know about this. Because it was like years ago, this is when I first started in nonprofit and I, and I wasn't a clinician or anything. And I thought, well, this is going to either go really well or really bad. And what's interesting is it was the grounding techniques, like the meditation and the emotion work were some of the favorite work that everyone had. And what was really fascinating was one of the guys who was older, and he's not even in his fifties, um, you know, was was speaking up one day and said he really enjoyed that part because for most of his life, or all of his life, he really only knew two emotions: I'm either angry or I'm not angry, and that's it, and that's all he knew. And when he looked at this sheet of paper, it blew his mind as to all the things that you could feel and all the, and, and putting words to your emotions and the ways you feel. And we had tons of success with that program um, in, in the, the local detention center here in, in Hartford County in Maryland. And uh, like across the board, we had correctional officers that bought into it that would tell people about it because there were lower incident rates with with incarcerated individuals, we had individuals who were, you know, not getting into fights and, and were able to de-escalate certain situations because of all the things they were learning in the class. Um, so it was like people started interacting with each other better. People started interacting with staff and correctional COs better, um, you know, and, and interacting with like their probation and parole officers afterward better. So it was like, it was tons of really great things. And I'll be honest, I, I really missed that work and I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, that was when COVID hit, obviously they, you know, shut down all kind of stuff and hasn't really kind of kicked them back off just yet. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of times it's, it's again, it, emotions are very real. You know, they, they can cause like physiological, like changes in your body. Right. So if anyone says anxiety is not real, but it can make you feel like you're having a heart attack and that, <laughs> that feels pretty real. Um, 
And, and that to me, it's just understanding your emotions, sitting with your emotions. And then what, again, acknowledging what can you do when that comes up. So having a game plan for the next time. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of thinking when it comes to that. And I know based on conversations I have with people, conversations on the different episodes, that there's a lot of little minuscule pieces that go into all of this. And for somebody that's listening, that's going through some craziness and just feels like they're in a tough spot and they don't have more things that they want to think about, or I don't want to have to do these certain things. It's a matter of taking the moments when you're okay to be able to work through that, to prep yourself when you're in those moments. Because when you're in the moments, it's game time and you got to be on. You can't allow your emotions to just run you or anything of that sort. So with the people that you work with, Jose, how do you help them through that? Uh, Can you kind of walk us through what that process looks like a bit? Yeah, I think like, like you mentioned, it's, um, you know, a lot of it is putting that game plan in place, you know, and it's recognizing what are some triggers or things that activate me that, you know, so understanding kind of what are some things that are going to get you riled up. I think one of the big things too is understanding your body. So physiologically, what does it look like when you feel like this is coming on? So like for me, I remember like um, I have high blood pressure. So like for a long time when I used to get like upset with my kids about like chores or whatever, I would notice I'd feel like it getting hot like on the back of my neck and my ears would feel kind of red and I could start feeling my my heartbeat in my neck. And I'm like, all right, I think I got to take, you know, hit a timeout, take a break, walk away. Um, and, and again, it's, I think one of the biggest things that you mentioned is, is that when I work with clients, um, the biggest thing is always safety. So the first thing we, we, we talk about is how can we make sure you're safe? So a lot of that is, like you said, it's, it's, you know, uh, grounding techniques, breathing techniques, how to bring them back to a baseline and then it's game planning. So one of the things that, it's huge in the recovery world, and and I I I'm bringing more of that into like my clinical work is what they call uh, rat plans. So it's called a wellness recovery action plan. Um, so like a wrap you eat, I guess. So W R A P. So um, one of the things is that you have to make sure you start filling out your rat plan, which is like if you ever heard of like advanced directives within like a hospital setting or something like that. Now they're starting to ask people when they come in the ER, do you have an advanced directive or a rat plan? Because it, it it's something you work on when you're well that can you can give to someone. So let's just say you're in, you're incapacitated, whether you're you're you can't you're nonverbal or whatever. You can give that to someone and they can open it and understand your your name, what are things that help, who are people to contact. Um, you can even go so far as to put your doctors in there and their numbers, the medications you're on. It, they're, you can look up, just look up rap plans online. There's tons of templates that are very thorough. Um, but one of the best things is, is, is how to help, what not to do. So I think a big thing, a lot of times that we we take for granted as humans, is that when we see someone who's who's let's just say um, in in a crisis, uh, the first thing we do is like put like a, a kind hand on their shoulder or something, right, and like say it's going to be okay. But the reality is that you could that could activate someone and make things worse. You know what I mean? But unless you knew that, 
it's a very simple common mistake to make, but you don't know what kind of trauma or things that a person has experienced. So like what you think is like taking an authoritative kind of voice and saying, Hey, get up, come on, like picking the person up and, and trying to talk to them that could, again, that could backfire and escalate. So it, it's, um, a lot of times it's again, treatment planning and thinking about what does that look like? So one of the things that also is in a wrap plan is called, um, what are things you have to do every day to make sure you're well? And then what are things you have to do like once a month to make sure you're well? So for some people, they think every day is like, oh, I got to work out. I got to eat right. I gotta... <laughs> okay, that's great. But let's go even smaller and be more realistic. Like on mine, it says, get out of bed, get dressed, brush my teeth, you know, like go to work. Like there, those are the things I have to do every day because I know that when I'm not doing well, and I realize maybe I'm not doing those sort of things, that that's a warning flag for people. You know, like, have I been sleeping in more? Have I been late to work? Have I been showing up disheveled? You know, those are kind of things you can kind of pick out as red flags. Um, and then what are things I got to do every month? Okay, every month, yeah, maybe maybe go work out, go for a bike ride, go for a walk with my wife and our dog, spend time with my kids. You know, like, those are the things that, Again, the same thing, you know, go on a date night with my wife, you know, like those are the things that I know I got to do, go to the movies. I love going to the movies. So like, those are things that I would put in there that would help me. And whenever I feel like I'm out of funk and I consult it and look at it, if I sat there and go, wow, those things like I got to do every month, I don't remember the last time I did them. That might be a good, a good indicator. Like, let me go back to it. You know, let me, let me try and go back into self-care and, and do the things that I want to do for myself and no one else um, to help keep me managed. And that's really kind of the big thing. Like you said, is managing your mindset and your emotions is realizing that while many things may just happen to you that are out of your control is realizing that you still have a fair amount of control in your life when it comes to well, what do you do when that happens? How do you react? Or do you not react, right? Like, and and then starting that whole process of deconstructing what are things that activate or trigger you? What are things that are pain points in your life? What are things that you want to just do better and improve on? And I think that's a big thing. Like I tell people all the time, like therapy isn't just for when your life is is gone to shit. And like suddenly you're, 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 in, you're in crisis, like therapy can very much be proactive and maintenance work to where you just, I think everyone has something they could work on, you know, or ways they could just be happier or, or do better, um, feel better, you know? And, and so that's a big thing is, is really just understanding where everyone, what everyone, what their, what their kind of thing looks like. And the biggest thing that came out of, um, recovery work that I, is a direct link to clinical work is meeting people where they're at, you know, is realizing that for some people, therapy might look like us checking in every week to make sure that person bathed that day and they got dressed and they got out of the house and went for a walk. And if that's what it has to look like for eight months for then that person to get their job, their first job in years and suddenly we're, we go from seeing each other twice a week or once a week to once a month and they're doing awesome, then that's what it has to be. And then you have other people who are on the higher functioning end of things 
who maybe again, it might be something as simple as generalized anxiety or something like that, or just stress about money or, or, you know, like relationship issues. That's fine. You know, just meeting people where they're at and realizing that um, everyone's different and everyone's individual cases are very individualistic. And, uh, and then just realizing that when I meet with someone, the first thing I ask is, what do you want to get out of therapy? You know, what, what is your point of, of reaching out to me and coming here today so that we can, again, as always, game plan and then start with the big thing and work our way backwards and say, how, do we, how are we going to get there? You'd mentioned about being in the funk. And I think a lot of people are in that spot where they know what it's like when they're in a funk, but it's post-funk. Because they're like, oh, shit, I felt terrible. And then they look back at it and go, fuck, I felt terrible for weeks, months, a year, or whatever it was. So I have these little check-ins with myself where I know that my natural state is happy, even joyous, energetic, and excited. That's my natural state. So if I'm slightly off of that, I'm not going to see it right off the bat. But if I'm different, and I wake up in the morning and feel different, and I don't have that joy, and I don't have that movement, I've actually conditioned myself to go, hold up, McGowan, what's your deal? What is this? And then pull the emotions in and go, all right, get your asses in here. What's your deal? Well, I'm nostalgia. Well, what's your fucking problem? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then being able to deal with that. But that takes a lot of awareness and work. I don't say this to be braggy or boastful, but I put in the work to be able to get to that point where I go, wait, hold up. So how do you work with people to get to that point where they can say, hold up, I don't feel right? So like you said, that to me... Um, and, and, and I apologize this is too forward, so you can cut this out if you want, but, um, I know you're a peer as well. So I think a lot of times those who are in long-term recovery, uh, a lot of times the biggest thing that the commonality is incredible self-awareness because you put in the time because it was a matter of life and death to understand yourself, to understand what your, again, your, your normal baseline is and to recognize when you're out of it. And if you're fortunate enough to have people in your life who can keep you accountable, have those conversations with them, you know, who understand you, who say like, Hey, if you see me kind of like pushing you out or just like pushing you away, please like fight through me pushing you away and make sure that I'm doing what I have to do to make sure I'm well. And for me, that was talking to my parents, my wife, my kids, you know, people, my friends, people in my life, even now, like my bosses to say, Hey, like I communicate all, like recently I came off of all my medication because of blood pressure issues. So that was really scary for me because while I've gone years without medication, I have been on medication in this whole six-year period we've been talking about. So for me to come off of it, I thought to myself, well, I haven't, I have a years where I've been off of it. I've been okay, but I feel like this is maybe different, you know? And I, I openly, again, I know everyone's cases are different, but I openly told, you know, my boss, hey, you know, I'm a peer. And luckily I work in the space that we're all peers, right? And I said, 
I'm coming off medication. I'm coming off my ADHD medication, like all these things. And I might be different. I might seem off. I might be off my game. Please, if you see that, A, now you know why. B, tell me so I can adjust and course correct instead of just, oh, he's going through some things right now. Well, no, no, no. Like, you know, keep me accountable. You know what I mean? Like, I want to make sure I'm not in a place because, like I said, all these years ago, when I got let go from that job in New York City, I was deeply depressed. And I wasn't telling anyone because I moved to an area where I had no family, no friends. I didn't know anyone. I worked from home. So I didn't like, I didn't have like that normal kind of like nucleus of like your work friends and they introduced to other people. Like I had nothing. Like our kids didn't have many friends. So it was like, that's eventually how I made some friends around here was through our friends, our kids playing sports and stuff. But beyond that, like it was just, I was just, it was all internal. And that was the issue was I wasn't, I wasn't telling anyone. Um, and I, so I think like you had said that it's, you know, the biggest thing I tell people is understanding yourself, understanding your own issues. And once you have the understanding, pulling in people who are in your support network and some people look at it like, well, I don't have any family or I don't have many friends. And it's like, right, but you might have like a doctor you see. That's a person in in your support network, you know, like they, 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 they want you to be well too. So it's, you know, just communicating with everyone in your life to make sure that they help you be accountable. Um, and like you said, you do the work to understand yourself to then know that a lot of times what we realize is for probably 90% of people out there, we just go through life on autopilot. Like we're white knuckling it, you know? And, and, and that's just, we just figure we're just getting by because life is hard. But then you realize that there's so much more to life. And, and a lot of times, unfortunately, it has to be something drastic and all life altering for you to get to that mind space, right? Whether it's an overdose or a car accident or a near death experience, or even just like something with your children or your parents, or it's just gotta be something. And and the hope is that for a lot of people, um, you know, because like I said, I work with people who are incarcerated. I work with people who, um, you know, have lots of life trauma and all these sorts of things. And and to say to them, like, you know, we can we can be more proactive about it. And it's just it's just a matter of putting in the work. Yeah, I think some people are hesitant to put in the work because they think of the pain it took to get to where they're at, and they're trying to get out of that pain. So typically people will look at deep work without understanding that it's deep work, but just think like, ah, I got to do that stuff and I got to get into my emotions. I've heard that at different times where it's just such a surfacey thing to say and live at where you go, I don't want to do those things because I don't think those things work. Because some of that I think comes from the way that we've been raised or people that we've seen over the course of time. Something that's popped into my mind every so often is about seeing the parents of friends or friends of friends in high school or grade school. And there were certain parents that were just shitty people. And they hated themselves, they hated their lives, they hated all that stuff. And I remember some of those kids being like, well, this is the way life is. Fucking blows. Here it is. And I was like, well, I see why you would think that. And it's all about our perspective. 
and being mindful of what our actual perspective is. Um, but it can get really dark. So there are people that have gone through dark things and that it's difficult to get into that perspective. So how do you suggest to the people that are going through that now to start to have that conversation? I think, like, like I mentioned earlier, the idea that life is hard, period. Like, just surviving and waking up every day is difficult. It takes effort. And if you know that, and you accept that as like, okay, life is just hard, then, like you mentioned, like, yeah, it's work to to learn about yourself, to unpack previous experiences in your life and traumas and things that you've had going on. It is uncomfortable. Uh, it is painful. But again, if you can sit there and say, I'm going to do the uncomfortable thing, I'm going to sit with the main emotions, I'm going to do the painful work, because your end goal, your bigger goal, is that you want to grow as an individual and be a happier more well-rounded person, mm-hmm. then that's worth it. Well, we got to know our story. You know, I, you've brought up a couple times, life is hard. And just the thought of that is almost depressing. Of, yeah, oh, life yeah. can be hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. about the stories that we tell ourselves and the way that we sink into those stories. If we think that life is hard and therefore life sucks then guess what you're going to get? A bunch of shit, because life's just going to suck at that point. So if in our heads we understand that, yes, things are tough, and that's what it is, then it's a matter of figuring out what your story is to move forward. So I know I've been in spaces before where I've been stuck there, where life is tough and perpetually seems to be tough. So in those cases, how do you work with your clients to be able to change that story? I think a lot of that, like some of the things that we starting off like from baseline, what we'll do is like if if I'm trying to work with someone who is trying to note patterns in things, right? Like you said, they they don't really kind of realize that what's happening is is a cyclical pattern, that kind of thing. Is I'll have them work on um, like a feelings journal, you know. Where every day they'll just not even you don't have to write like a whole like paragraph of what you went through that day. You can just say, Today I am X, right? And give it a week. Work on it for a week. Work on it for two weeks. And if after two weeks you sit there and you go, Wow, like I realize like ten out of the last fourteen days I've been angry. Wow. Like that's pretty powerful. And then you just, again, starting from the beginning, why do you think that is? Why do you think that anger is such a huge part of your life? You know? And again, you can sit there and say, because I'm out of work, or I'm underemployed, or I have two kids and and, and I'm a single parent. Like, yes, life, again, like we said, it can be debilitating if you sit there and think about it and have this existential crisis. But the reality is, you're alive you're breathing, you have two beautiful children, like you're all healthy. Like those are the things that should be your major takeaways. The other stuff, pain, pain in every form of it is temporary. Whether it's 
a second, a week, a year, a decade. It doesn't matter. It's temporary. And that's all I had to keep telling myself was that when I'm at my lowest of lows and I don't want to get out of bed and I don't want to do anything else and I don't want to work on me or work on my career, I just thought to myself, this will pass. What I'm feeling, what I'm going through, I don't know if it's going to take a year or two or more, but if I'm fortunate, that time will still pass no matter what. So kind of asking again yourself, do you want to just be a passenger in the things that happen to you and the, and life just kind of just kicks you around and you just deal with it? Or do you want to understand certain things about yourself and work on it and work towards bettering yourself? And, and again, starting off with just recognizing the patterns, recognizing the emotions, understanding, because you'd be like, actually COVID, like, I can't believe we're about to, we're in year three. Stop. I know. Jeez. Like, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate, like me and my family, like my, my immediate family, we've, none of us have gotten it up until now, which with Omicron is apparently a <laughs> unbelievable, right? And, and, you know, we've had jobs the whole time. Our kids have transitioned and become homeschooled. Our son's about to graduate in May as a junior because of being homeschooled. You know, our kids' grades, because they were very anxious children, have gone up, you know, ever since switching. And, and so I say all, all to say we are very fortunate, right? Because for a lot of people, it was a lot worse. But the reality is this whole, like, fog of two plus years, it's easy to lose sight of everything and not understand. That's why I think nowadays, especially like I've been working a lot with people about logging their emotions and, and, and journaling and stuff, because it's easy when you're home all day and don't leave the house for days at a time to lose track of time. Sure. Where every day is a Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so I think again, it goes, it goes down to like you had mentioned, what works for me wouldn't work for you or may not work for you, may not work for someone else. Sure. So a lot of times it's meeting people where they're at, helping them address what do they want to get out of working with a therapist um, and then what's going on in their life and, 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 and that kind of thing. And um, I think one of the biggest things that's really important that I work with people on is realizing that you know, therapy in itself, I mean, it is literally self-care. But I think a lot of times, especially parents and all kinds of stuff, the idea of like prioritizing yourself is like icky, you know, like it's like a dirty word. And and I always think about like when I did the podcast, um, Chase Jarvis, one of the, one of the guys that I, that I admired for years in the photography world. And then I actually saw I, I saw him for the first time in two years at Photo Plus and he was he was on the show and he's a great two part episode. Um and one of the things he talked about is he looked at his phone and he said, I've been on a plane every two point two days in the last like two years. Cause he was flying back and forth between Seattle and San Francisco, where his two studios were. And um he said one of the things that always stuck out to me was that safety briefing 
where they tell you to put on your mask before you put on someone else's or you help somebody else. And that to me was huge because I remember even when I was younger, I used to go always go to Puerto Rico every summer. And I used to think to myself, that's dumb. Put on your kids and then you put on yours, right? Like, isn't that what you're supposed to do? And then you realize that if you don't take care of yourself and you put other people before you with all the great rationalization that you can do and the fact that you're a parent and that's what you feel like you're supposed to do and you would die for your child, which is very true. Everyone here, we would die for your child. But the point is, if you really want to help other people, you have to make sure that you help yourself first. Otherwise, you're useless to everyone else in your life. If you have a break or if you, God forbid, have a heart attack or you just pass or whatever, or if you just checked out in life because you aren't addressing the things that are going on inside you because you think that it's not a priority. Well, priorities kind of shifted throughout 2020 and 21. And I think a lot of people were exposed of some of the bitterness that they had, and they're still dealing with it. There are certain people that I know are continuing to fight the fights that started to show themselves in the beginning stages of the pandemic. And they're still unsure exactly how to make those choices or moves. I'm sure there are people that are kind of in just a state of fear that are stuck in jobs, mm-hmm. stuck in relationships, stuck in yep. just that fixed mindset where it's on us to be able to move out of that. And we've covered a lot of stuff today, Jose. There's a lot that we uh, can continue to get into. And man, I just want to say thank you for being on the show with us and unpacking all of this. Are there any major pieces of advice you'd like to give for anybody that's going through any tough times right now and really trying to manage their mindset and their emotions? I think the biggest thing is empowerment. Like again, realizing that while many, many, many things that happen to you in your life are out of your control. Like I always like, I'm I'm never, I was never like an AA person, but you know, I, I love that, you know, the, the, the creed, right. Of, you know, understanding the things that you can change, things you can't letting go of this. Because yeah, to me, it's very true. There's certain things that when you get frustrated and you feel like you're stuck and you're just low point that you just have to let go, that they're just out of your control. But, while it can be like you mentioned earlier, while that can be very like you can you can literally just throw yourself into a depressive tizzy and be like, oh my God, this is the world just happening to me. But the reality is for all the things you have to let go, you still have a ton of control over your own path, over how you react to certain things, how you let certain things get to you. And that's a big piece of of eventually working with clients that we work up to is this, this notion that, you know, you have a ton of say and power in your everyday life that you may not realize. And, and some people say, well, I, I, you know, I don't really have much say. No, the reality is you do. Yeah. You have a job and you need to keep your job. Sure. But you made the choice to go into the work that day. You know, now granted, do you need money? Do you need to pay rent? Do you need to pay your mortgage? I'm like, of course. But you, you chose to go to work that day. Okay, good job. 
You know what I mean? Like, you want to do something else? Okay, let's start there. There's assessments you can take to figure out what field you might excel in. You know, like, if you ever heard of the the Myers-Briggs Type Inventory, the MBTI, I, I make everybody take that at some point. Because I'm like, it's so informative. I'm an IFNJ, by the way. It's so informative. Yeah. (laughs) Where you can literally look up. Now you have this little tag, right? It's a little little label, if you will. And you can say, okay, I'm an INFJ. Okay. So I'm going to look up INFJ on Google and find all these sorts of things. And what was funny was when I looked up my code, uh, I found out that of like seven careers that they tell you you'd be good at, I've already done five of them. <laughs> and I never knew that. I thought it was hysterical. I was like, wow, that's really kind of wild. And if I had known that when I was 16, maybe that would, things would have been a little bit different. You know, who knows? Maybe. But Right. But to me, it was what was really great, what I got out of it was – uh, I share with everyone now like a PDF where it breaks down like all these different things about what you are in Myers-Briggs, right? And there's sections. And there's one section is what really like motivates you. Boom. Here's like five bullet points that are just, they just cut straight to your core like a like a horoscope. You know what I mean? And then here's here's some things that stress you, stressors. And I look at that and I'm like, yep, that's why I quit that job. That's why I <laughs> left that. You know, and I'm like, yep, that drove me into drinking. Okay, got it. Those are my stressors. And then and then it has a whole section of like, you know, what what could it look like career-wise, you know? Um, and I, I think that's hugely powerful for people because while you don't have to love what you do, you don't have to be working your passion every day. It's, um, be realistic. So you can have a job just to have a job. But the biggest thing is finding balance in your life. So if you have just a job as a job, that's great. But maybe you go home and play guitar at night and you make music and that's how you feel balanced and how you find balance in your life. That's awesome. Maybe you're someone who does very like like for me right like does very people very pouring out a lot every day with clients with people like when i used to when i was the executive director i only worked with street homeless so like every day i was reminded of and 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 kind of given that perspective back of how good i have it even though i could complain every day about certain things i still had a car i still had a house and a, and a family you know so it was very much like taxing but also gave me a heavy dose of life perspective every day to where I really didn't sweat the small stuff anymore. Um, and, and I think again, that's the big thing is just finding balance for you and what that looks like. You know, for me, it's, it's Legos, it's going to the movies, it's reading books. Um, you know, it's spending time with my wife and my kids, it's cycling. And then of course it, I, I genuinely love what I do. So I'm fortunate. Again, I'm not saying everyone, should strive for that or, or it has to necessarily. But um, if you do, though, it's pretty sweet. And if at the very least you can figure out what's something I'm just good at, right? Like if you can use these tools and these things to help figure out something that even if it might not be your passion, but you're good at it and you can get paid well to do something that you're just naturally good at, then why not? You know, because I think a lot of times as people and as individuals, we we are, as human beings, I should say, we're really good 
at just dealing with getting shitted on all day, every day. You know, I always think of that like little meme with the dog and the fire. This is fine, right? Surrounded <laughs> by fire, this is fine, right? Like, that's how I think a lot of people live their life. This is fine. It's like, is it though? You know, and, and sometimes you can have that person in your life, whether it's a therapist or or a pastor or, you know, a friend or a family member who can help keep you a little bit honest and keep you accountable and kind of hopefully help you call you out on your shit sometimes too when you need it in a loving way um, to say like, hey, like, you know, wh- where are you at? You know, and, and, and just can I do better? Can I be happier or can I be happy? You know, if, if you're in a really dark place. Um, and again, I think the piece of advice I can always give is, is you have a lot more power than you realize over your life, over your, your mindset, over your, you know, even, even your station in life. You know, I, I always love hearing those rags of riches stories and, and all those sorts of things. Like one of my favorite movies, Pursuit of Happiness. I still cry like a baby when I watch that movie, you know? Because to me, it was like, if you put in the work, things will pan out. It things may not be work. what you expect. Right. It may not be the way you thought it would, but things will work out, you know? Um, like, I have a lot of tattoos, and my wife has a lot of tattoos, but she has this one on her on her forearm. Very simple. It just says... This too shall pass, dot, dot, dot. And she's lived her life and had tons of things happen to her and at her. And and it's crazy how I can look at that more than she does and just think to myself, this too shall pass. Like, you know, like it's totally true. Nothing is forever. And I think that once you realize that on every every aspect of the scale – Happiness is not forever. Pain is not forever. That you realize you're a lot more resilient than you think, but you also have to be very grateful for what you do have because you can lose it at any moment. So realizing that, you know, being present and um, and grateful for what you do have is, is also a very important step too. It's a hell of a way to end this episode. There's a lot that's within that. And I think some of our listeners might have to go back and listen to that over and over, even some of the stuff that we talked about a little earlier, there's a lot of really great steps of ways to be able to work within yourself. I think moral of the story is probably to be aware and to mm-hmm. be mindful of those little tickers for you that either tick you one direction or a different direction, but you got to find out what your stasis is. And Jose, again, man, I really appreciate that you're on here uh, and being honest and open, vulnerable about all this stuff. Can you share your details? Where can people connect with you and find some information on you? Yeah. Um, this is one thing that I think is humorous about aging. Uh, <laughs> was ordinarily, I'd be like, yeah, find me on this piece of the internet and on this social media platform and you'll see everything. Um, what's interesting is nowadays, I got to be honest, I don't go on social media much anymore. Um you know, so I'll shout out some handles that you can look at and go, wow, this guy hasn't posted in four months. Um, but at least are a way to get in touch. Um, so like on Instagram, it's Jose Rosado photo. Um, online, it's Jose Rosado photo.com. Um, 
my, I still have my photo website up. Um, the Angry Millennial Show is still up. So you have the angrymillennialshow.com. You can check the show out there. Uh, creativesagainstdepression.com. That's still something I'm still, you know, still nursing. So if anyone has any, um, ever wants to help write a, a blog post or share their story, please, you know, reach out. I, I'd love to, you know, have you have you write something on the website and share your story on there. Um, you know, I, I write for ecounseling.com. Um, you know, I would say uh, nowadays I love to connect uh, IRL, as the kids say, and and tell people, hey, come come uh, come take a class at Towson, or you know, um, you know, come come check out some certain things. Like there's a couple of things in the works right now. Like I'm looking to get my my uh, my graduate thesis, my capstone project published. So hopefully that'll be happening at some point this year. Um, I just applied for the uh, Mental Health Association of America, their um, their uh, annual conference. I applied to present at their annual conference in June, so hopefully maybe that goes through. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm just really nowadays taking breaks from kind of digital interactions and really just making sure that I'm a lot more present for my kids and my wife and my family and for myself. And uh, I still love this stuff, though. I got to admit, you know, it's still fun to converse and, and have good discussion and conversations around topics. Um, and maybe this year at some point might revisit, you know, the podcasting thing. But for at least for now, it's it's always fun to guest and, and to, um, you know, to have these kind of conversations because I think they're very important ones to have. And if we're going to do anything to, uh, you know, lessen stigma and those sorts of things and normalize these kind of conversations. This is one of the best ways to do it. It's a beautiful way to put it, man. Thank you again for being with us. I wish you the best. We'll talk soon. Thanks, brother. Another great conversation on today's episode of the Mindset and Self Mastery Show. Like I said a little earlier, I think the moral of the story is awareness, but it's also taking risks while leaning on others for love and support and accountability as you continue throughout life. But what did you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the conversation today. And if you enjoyed the episode, please jump over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. You see, those help others benefit from these episodes just like you and I are. And if you really enjoyed the show today, go ahead and share it with your friends. You can check out the show notes for more info, contact info for Jose, and check out the other episodes on themindsetandselfmasteryshow.com, as well as our YouTube channel. Just look up The Mindset and Self Mastery Show. And thank you again, Jose, for being on the show, for being honest, raw, and real with us. And thank you to you for joining the party. I hope you've enjoyed yourself and you feel encouraged from the conversation today. And with that, remember, your mindset matters. And so do you.